Hello and welcome to another episode of Triassic Park, where we are continuing our journey all about Mighty Joe Young. Last week we talked about the film itself, and today we are going towards some fascinating places with a lot of twists and turns when we talk about the making of Mighty Joe Young. And we're not alone here today. We're also joined by Jason. Hello, Jason. Buckle your seatbelts, because... Who would have guessed that this fucking child's movie um, is going to take us to places we're going tonight? So kiss your children, put them to bed, you know, uh, make sure there's nobody around because it's going to get dark, you know? I'm Hell scared. yeah. Hell yeah. And yeah, the one who's scared is Kelly. <laughs> hey, hi, Kelly. Hi, hi. You are You are here of your own volition and are not hostage, <laughs> correct? Correct, correct. Thank I signed you. up for this shit, yeah. <laughs> Kelly. Ke- Kelly, blink twice if you need help. <laughs> oh, this isn't a visual media. Right. Oh, damn. <laughs> I forgot how podcasts work. Oh, I'm a rich person. I forgot how podcasts work. Because I don't actually have to do any of the work. Uh, anyways, that was a little bit of social commentary for you all. And mm-hmm. uh, we will continue that as we go in. Uh, before we get too far into this, let's talk about the sources. Because there are a lot of sources, surprisingly yeah. enough. Oh, daddy. A lot. So, we have Kong Unmade. We have The Making of King Kong. We have King Kong Cometh. We have Ray Harryhausen, Titan of Cinema. We have Ray Harryhausen, Master of the Magics. We have Ray Harryhausen, An Animated Life. We have The Nicest Fella. We have Seductions, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes, Hollywood. I'm King Kong, the documentary. The Ray Morton King Kong book. Beauty and the Billionaire, The Passions of Howard Hughes, Living Dangerously, The Adventures of Marion C. Cooper, the Blu-ray for Mighty Joe Young, which has a wonderful commentary featuring Terry Moore, Ray Harryhausen, and Ken Ralston, and uh, some other special features associated with that particular Blu-ray. Yes, so that's a lot. Um, And it's kind of funny because no one source tells the entire story. Some of them tell kind of, uh, you know, conflicting stories. Because there there were uh, a few books that were kind of assigned but actually didn't end up being relevant. Uh, Mainly any book talking about the history of John Ford. Because, um, you know, his books pretend like this movie didn't happen. There's there's a lot to sift through. Hence the... 5,000 books that we read for this podcast. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, like like I was kind of uh, talking about, the John Ford stuff isn't actually that accurate um, because they they pretty much say he had nothing to do with this movie and all reports say otherwise. So we are going to go with that idea of events because, um, you know, it's more interesting to, um, you know, go with stuff that makes sense uh, other than the... John Ford's never even heard of Mighty Joe Young. He don't even know what a monkey is. And it's like, oh, that's boring. But uh, here, here's what I'll say. If you are interested at all in, like, the exploits of Marion C. Cooper, Living Dangerously is an incredible book. Um, I really recommend it. The That's what makes this hard as well is because the stuff that sounds like bullshit, especially around Marion C. Cooper, is real. Mm-hmm. And um, you're like, really? That's real? Uh, but other stuff may not be real, you know? Um, but Living Dangerously, which I could only find in audio, um, 
is yeah, it's it, it, it's like it's kind of out of print right now, but the audiobook is still in print, which is a very weird uh, weird thing because I've I've listened to it also on audio. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the actual handwritten notes of the original book is uh, it, it, I think it's like uh, I think it's just out of print. So they just for whatever reason. Uh, that's out of print, and it shouldn't be because uh, it is actually a really good book. Like I think it's like really good, um, and yeah. So we're gonna talk about that today. Uh, the story of King Kong has one final stop with its original creators: Marion C. Cooper, Ernest P. Sodzak, Ruth Rose, and of course Willis O'Brien. And that is Mighty Joe Young, a Kong movie in all about name. During this time period post-Kong, Marion C. Cooper was hard at work doing co-productions with John Ford. They had met in the RKO days, and after the Second World War, the two men formed a long-running partnership that touched on some of John Ford's most iconic pictures. We're talking about movies like The Searchers, one of the most influential uh, pieces of media of all time, uh, mainly because it was pretty much ripped off. Many scenes of it were ripped off for Star Wars, right? Like uh, it, 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 a lot of the cinematography and a lot of the uh, ideas uh, of Star Wars are actually kind of taken from The Searchers, especially in that, that opening sequence of Tatooine. Um, but also, also movies like The Quiet Man, which really don't fit as well within this time period because it's actually a, a pretty sweet romance with some weird manhandling stuff, but we'll get to that eventually, uh, in our romance podcast, which will never happen. Uh, <laughs> the two men ended up forming their own production company, and that was called Argosy Pictures, and that began after Stagecoach. So, 1939 Stagecoach, uh, by John Ford was a huge success, and afterwards, um, you know, they formed their, the Argosy Pictures. Before the world, Second World War, they actually only ended up releasing one picture and that was called the long voyage home which was in 1940 when cooper finally did become executive producer after king kong he would do any excuse he could to bring in airplanes it was his first love he loved adventure he loved using airplanes and anytime he could incorporate that he was all for it it's funny because you think something that tried to kill you three times would not be uh, your love anymore, but you know, it is. Hey, what hey, is. man, he's a real one. We'll get to we'll get to Howard Hughes, the fake one. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> but Cooper was a real one. Yeah. Um, and anytime he had any excuse to do something kind of a little offbeat, he would do it. And I think one of the prime examples of that is the the musical Flying Down to Rio which was literally filmed in the sky. Mm-hmm. They had a whole bunch of dancers strapped to old biplanes uh, doing a bunch of musical numbers. And uh, it doesn't look safe to me. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I, I mean, especially knowing about how many times planes almost killed Mary C. Cooper. I would not trust Try that, that shit, Lynn Manuel Miranda. Try that shit. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> uh, he he also did amazing things when he was he was helping run RKO, which was he did a screen test of Catherine Hepburn, and he partnered Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Uh, one of the yeah, it's like a huge. It, he he really is. Uh, as we kind of will continue on and, and talk about Cooper, uh, Cooper really kind of is one of the most influential. 
uh, people in all of cinema, and a lot of that is behind-the-scenes stuff that you wouldn't even really realize. Uh, he kind of took a break for a while after he married Dorothy Jordan, and he took a year-long honeymoon. And um, it was kind of seen as uh, as a little bit uh, of a surprise back in the day. Uh, the documentary, I'm King Kong, it talks about it in such a way that it's like, yeah, people didn't really think I'd want to go off and just spend a year with my wife. But I was like, yeah, work and wait. I will. I, I only get one of these. And she was obviously, she was, she was a bit younger than he was, and he was kind of getting up in the getting up in the years so uh you know it's really interesting it's really interesting that like i feel like marion c cooper for this story is like the baseline in other words like i, I mean there's talk of marion c cooper and john ford getting together because they agree politically about how mm. the united states works right in the real world i would fucking hate marion c cooper like as a person <laughs> probably but he's the most admirable person uh, or one of the most admirable people in this entire story, mm-hmm. um, besides Harryhausen, um, you know, and uh, and Ernest, right? Um, yeah, yeah, and and you know, and and one of the one of the things I think that kind of makes him relatable is this idea that he just kind of took a break, right? Yeah. Like he was just yeah. like, yeah, I'm, I'm getting married, like I'm gonna take, I'm gonna like leave it all behind, and like again, like this is a major studio that just finally got in the like finally started making money after king kong right so it's a it's it's pretty impressive and as soon as he got back he just became obsessed with color and as such he set up pioneer pictures and made the very first movie in technicolor which was a movie called becky sharp in 1935 and he was even influential in getting gone with the wind made in technicolor that's an unfortunate fact, but it's true. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, also, um, we don't have this that, but Gone with the Wind also burned a bunch of the sets. That, oh, um, oh, well, yeah, the, the, yeah, the final, the, the final end of the Skull Island uh, wall. <laughs> Once World War II hit, he was too old for general conscription, but he still abandoned all of his movie projects and sold off the entirety of his aviation stocks to enter World War II. He sold off his stocks in aviation so that he would not be a war profiteer. Hmm. Which again, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Uh, and yeah. when he was in, yeah, for sure, <laughs> definitely. When he was in World War II, he actually became the chief of staff in like the aerial defense of China, and in that he ran the very famous Flying Tigers um, and was in command of that. Funnily enough, John Wayne actually starred in a movie called The Flying Tigers. So uh, it, it, that is kind of just like a little I'm funny sure that fact. that was very racist. Oh, I'm sure it was very racist. I'm, yeah, you don't even have to see it to know that. Yes. No. <laughs> and, and it is kind of, it is just kind of funny that, you know, movies were being made about Cooper even. Mm. Um, the, he was very successful. Like the flying tigers was a very successful, uh, bombing, (laughs) bombing brigade at the time. And, uh, it was, he, he did so much during world war two that he was actually there on the USS Missouri when the Japanese surrendered in the in world war two, which is just kind of insane. That's like a a insane piece of history that Mm -hmm. he was just there for. And then after the war, he became a brigadier general. And then we get to the interesting parts. He, after World War II, he really kind of got obsessed with this idea of communism being the enemy of American values. 
And what he wanted to do is make movies that were pretty much propaganda that made like, you know, rah, rah, America is so great. Um, and who better to, to team up with for that than our good old friend, uh, John Ford? Because uh, let me tell you, John Ford uh, loved making things that were very pro-America. Um, the Some of these, I watched a bunch of the Westerns from this time period. And like things like the Rio Grande are just really hard to watch. Um, because they're really all about treating um, you know indigenous people like they are the communist threat, basically. Like uh, just they have like no personality. And they don't have any lines. They're just seen as an enemy that they need to be eliminated. Um, one of the weird thing is during this a batch of very pro America uh, sentiment movies, uh, there was a movie called Fort Apache made, and Fort Apache openly acknowledges that America failed the indigenous population in in such ways that it it touches on the like corruption seen in many reservations and it actually gives the characters a lot of room to to breathe and really humanizes uh, uh the 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 indigenous peoples and it was it was really kind of surprising because um you know to put it frankly uh these other movies had none of that depth so it was it was a very fascinating weird thing that was kind of sitting in the middle of this filmography but for the most part, it was it was really just uh, you know just American propaganda with only like a few little things here and there. Have you have you seen many either of you seen many Ford westerns? Uh, so I've seen uh, Stagecoach and uh, Rio Grande, and I'm sure there's other ones. Was Red River one of his? That might have been Howard Hawks. Uh, no, that was a Hawks one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The Good Howard. Um, the, the good Howard. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen a few of them. I've tried many times, and my brain just shuts down, and I mm. go comatose every time John Wayne is on screen. It's unbelievable. I, I can't handle it. My no, that's that's completely it. fair. The the yeah. only ones that I would say need, like I would really strongly recommend, is the aforementioned Fort Apache, and then I also... Well, I, I think you should see The Searchers, too, right? Like, Oh, I don't, I don't like The Searchers. Uh, I don't think it's a good film, necessarily, but I do think it's um, a noteworthy film. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, but but the ones that I think are actually good, I think The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is also, like, that an amazing is, film. I really like that one. Yeah. yeah, and that's, like, a later period, right? And that's kind yeah. of, uh, again, not with um, uh, Cooper, so not not applicable for this episode, but that's the other Ford Weapon that I definitely enjoy. Um, for Mighty Joe Young, when they started to kind of when they started to do pre-production, they decided to take Argosy Productions and create a subsidiary called Arco Pictures. Now, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think it's not too much of a stretch to assume that this is because Argosy Productions is teaming up with RKO, so they just combine the two two names for this movie um and you know cooper was very much involved in this movie from the beginning and there were some reports that he even had little metal taps on the bottom of his shoes so that every time he came around people would be um, people would know he, re he really was kind of a, the terror of uh of the sets because they're like oh god cooper's coming along we gotta, we gotta shape up yeah that report, uh, that report comes mostly from terry moore so um I, I mean we'll talk about terry moore's um 
uh, situation with this film, but she really talks about at length, at length talks about how um, Cooper is like sort of this goofy, almost like comically attention seeking character. Um, I don't know how true that is. It seems really weird to me that somebody who's been through all that real shit um, would um, would really need all that attention. But, you know, and she may be also, as we get into this, be getting um, biased based on the situation that she's in as well mm-hmm. about how she feels. Um, but there's no doubt. There's no doubt um, if you pay attention to this film that um, Max O'Hara is is our friend Cooper, right? Mm, yeah. That bombastic, um, <laughs> attention-seeking, almost comical character. It's definitely taking shots at him. Yeah, for sure. For in sure. a friendly I, way, I think. Yeah, me. oh yeah. I, I have presented, I think it's in good good spirits, but I, I definitely agree that there's a lot of shots being taken in this movie. <laughs> Buddy Joe Young really kind of came into the idea for Cooper after a successful re-release of King Kong. Now, we, we talked about how King Kong gonna, got a lot of re-releases, and every time they were very successful. And a few years after this, 1952, when it got another re-release, that pretty much started the giant monster boom that lasted throughout the, the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, so King Kong getting re-released almost always ends up in something being made from it, which is always just kind of really amusing, especially in this time period, because you, you, you're thinking about it like uh, he's thinking about this, and it's like nearly 10 years after, you know, 1945 is over it's like 12 years after king kong and still nothing it came even close to it at this period uh, son of kong son of kong <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding <laughs> it was close to it you're not, you're not wrong it was the same year it, it was, was close, close to, to it, it. Right. <laughs> um so they brought on willis o'brien as soon as he got the idea because cooper knew that you know o'brien was key to making this thing work Mm. um and o'brien was like really into this movie and would really go out of his way to like do a lot of pitches and to he he provided a lot of technical drawings um and really kind of helped them figure out how this film worked I mean, I I think all this is very important to mention because Willis O'Brien sometimes kind of gets the shaft when talking about this movie because he didn't do much of the animation. Um, There's probably only one or two scenes, if any, that uh, Willis O'Brien actually animated, but that doesn't mean he wasn't incredibly important to this film being made, um, and that definitely needs to, uh, you know, be addressed. Obig sort of gets the uh, Miguel Delgado... Um, treatment for this film as well you know what i mean um in that he's completely underappreciated um and there's a and there's a good reason for that right i mean they bring willis o'brien in thinking they need him to make this film work without knowing they have um a future genius that's going to change everything and how films are made um like right under their noses, right? Right. So that that that's a huge part of that, right? Not that Willis O'Brien. It, and by the way, that genius couldn't exist without Willis O'Brien. So I, I mean, just 
we'll get to that. But yeah, we'll we'll definitely get to it. Um, even though it started pre-production in 1945, the film did not get released until 1949, uh, July 27th specifically. Cooper got his idea based off of naturalist Augusta Maria Hoyt and her book Toto and I, in which Hoyt had raised a baby gorilla on a plantation in Africa. I couldn't, I didn't look up this book, but I imagine it's probably racist. I'm just yeah, gonna I guess. Mean, I'm, yeah, just making a just, guess. Just, I'm just making a guess. I'm just making a guess. Especially when it comes down to this. Um, Tex Hill was actually sent over by Cooper to find and do some photography of actual baby gorillas. Uh, and he wanted him to catch a baby gorilla for the film. Uh, now, Andrew, Sorry? is that the baby gorilla that we see at the beginning of this film that he catches? It has to be. I couldn't find be. anything like, on that. The, like, this is kind of just a, a, a little snippet of the I Am King Kong documentary um, because Tex Hill is one of the talking heads in that and said that he was kind of taken and sent over to capture a baby gorilla for the movie. <laughs> Um, I kind of imagine he probably just went with a camera or something to get it. Um, it doesn't, like, I... Uh, it sounds like a Max O'Hara type of uh, over-exaggeration for him to actually catch a baby gorilla and bring it back because um, he was. Ju- it seemed like he was just one guy. Um, Tex Hill was someone who actually worked under uh, Cooper during World War but II. But they have a baby gorilla, so that baby gorilla came from somewhere. Right? That's true. <laughs> I mean, it's true. He, he could have... Um, most likely he captured it, or maybe he just captured it on film, right? Like, it, it doesn't do that much, so I don't know. Um, but, yeah, so the budget was actually eventually set at $1.8 million and was filmed in Culver City. As I said, O'Brien did a lot of artwork for this film, um, and uh, there was someone missing from the cast, if you kind of really pay attention, and that was uh, animator E.B. Gibson. E.B. Gibson was an assistant animator on King Kong and, and animated the majority of Son of Kong. Because of that fact, I he was never really on good terms with willis o'brien afterwards yeah and i think that's why he wasn't on this movie to begin with um we'll get into his eventual addition to the cast but it was not due to o'brien typical of o'brien's life there was a lot of failures that happened before mighty joe young uh and that is just an unfortunate fact about willis o'brien is there were so many amazing ideas and uh very few of them ended up getting made the most famous of these was probably war eagles which actually had cooper involved and also had uh marcel delgado uh with o'brien and it sounds like an awesome film, and I really kind of wish that it happened. Um, but it was this movie where a bunch of giant eagles carried a group of natives from a prehistoric world into battle. The artwork that I've seen, it seemed to be kind of like there were like Norsemen. So that was a kind of mm. uh, of people being like carried on these giant eagles and they would just fight people like they would just war and like fight dinosaurs on giant eagles that's that's (laughs) awesome yeah listen let's get that animated film made for netflix (laughs) yeah it sounded so cool and it was supposed to end with a full-on assault on new york and the pre-production of this was actually seen by ray harryhausen when he had his very first meeting with o'brien um they did a few color test shots uh but 
the project stalled because of World War II. And that's mainly because everything that they had prepped, especially when they prepped any technology, by the end of World War II, all of their, like, biplanes and everything like this were incredibly dated. Mm. So they would have pretty much had to go back to the start and instead of kind of going back and fixing, like, you know, and adding new new types of, uh, you know, material and technology, they just ditched the project, unfortunately. The the roping sequence in Mighty Joe Young actually came directly from the Valley of Guanji, another failed O'Brien joint, but that joint would actually eventually come together in 1969, and that was done by Ray Harryhausen. Have you guys seen Valley of Guanji? I love it. I mean, I, it's been forever, but I loved it when I was a kid. I haven't because I've held off because we've talked about doing a podcast on it. So, um, no, I have not seen it. It is the second best dinosaur movie of all time, in my uh, estimation. Second only to Jurassic Park, obviously. But obviously. Obviously. The effects of Mighty Joe Young were actually originally planned in Technicolor, although it would just cost too much, unfortunately. Um, and I think this is kind of uh, a sad fact, because this would have been the only time we would have seen Willis O'Brien's work happen in color, mm. which sucks, because, yeah, because he got really demoted to cheapies after this. I really feel like a lot of these, like, time restraints and... Um, limitations is all John Ford. Like that's what I. That's my feeling. Is like he's he's, you know, um, pulling the strings, the puppet master from behind the scenes. He just doesn't want to spend the money and the time to make this film. You know. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's conjecture. We don't really know. No, but yeah, it, of course, it, of course, it wouldn't surprise me though because of course, um, you know, it's well acquainted that Cooper loved color like he right. he loved exactly. technicolor and uh i think i think it was like it was a potential that the budget was going to continue to balloon uh and you know unfortunately it i don't know if it would have done better in color like i that would be an interesting uh you know alternate history to see if this movie if when released in color it made a bigger splash it's really hard I, to tell. i have to say it would have in my opinion because this is a film that's predicated on new technology and special effects right so um i do think it being in black and white in 1949 sets it back you know what i mean mm-hmm. no that's yeah. that's 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 fair that's fair the only you know the only footage that had any type of coloring is that the tinting in the final orphanage scene and apparently the original footage was orange uh jason yeah yep yep um that's up from Harryhausen, so I'm, I'm very certain that this is accurate. Um, it isn't until, like, the laser disc transfer that they changed it to the vibrant red you see today. Um, right, right. I know I, I know a lot of, um, you know, preservation of silent films. The tinting is kind of lost um, because a lot of those silent era films would have a lot of tinting utilized, and a lot of that stuff is kind of lost, and the non-tinted versions of many pictures from that era exist today um that gives like you know there are there are movies that you know the the day for night stuff um doesn't hold up because they didn't actually keep the tinting not because they didn't do it in the first place um they're not they didn't do uh you know full-on uh crater like monster where they just stared into the sun and said it was night 
(laughs) (laughs) O'Brien was then, uh, you know, looking through all of the work to be done and realized that he needed to bring in Ray Harryhausen to assist with the animation. This was actually Ray Harryhausen's first feature film. And he did, you know, there is a a varied amount of percentage-wise to kind of debate, but it does seem to say that he probably animated over 90% of the picture overall. And he brought in a lot of refinements to the animation process, and, like, he really brought the the life in in Joe out. Um, And you really see that this is the beginning of Ray Harryhausen. Um, the actual beginnings of Ray Harryhausen was in 1920, June 29th to be exact, in San Francisco. His daughter, Vanessa, uh, described Ray as being very independent, and he was very frugal because, uh, if you're looking at the years, uh, he lived through the Great Depression. And let me tell you, I'm pretty sure the Great Depression would... Uh, you know, alter everyone's view on finances, <laughs> regardless. <laughs> As we really kind of talked and brought up in our King Kong episode, um, Kong changed Ray Harryhausen's life. And one of the earliest works of Ray Harryhausen is actually a really cool marionette of Kong that he made in his teens so that he could uh, act out scenes from King Kong at his school. Mm-hmm. Which is just uh, super, super amazing, um, and super cute. It, but that's but that's like it, we're gonna get into this um, it, right now. But like, that's how you had to learn. Like, there was no one teaching people how to do stop motion animation, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was kind of funny in in the recent. Um, there was a in Edinburgh. There is a Ray Harryhausen Ray Harryhausen Titan of Cinema uh, exhibit right now, and as they're kind of going through some of this early stuff, it's so rad. It's so fucking cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Like if you if you're at all interested in Ray Harryhausen, I definitely recommend going towards that virtual events um, and going through it. It's really really cool. Um, and one of the things that uh, they showcase in that is a lot of his early early stuff. And apparently, you know, Ray was kind of embarrassed about this stuff, and his daughter rightfully was like, "No, like people need to see that you didn't just get born a great artist. You really had to work for it, right?" Yeah. And I still think that some of this stuff looks really good still. Like, like even the stuff where he's like, oh, man, I'm kind of embarrassed by that. I'm like, Ray, that looks better than anything I will <laughs> ever make, ever. I, I mean, like, the thing about Harryhausen, in my opinion, what makes him great is that you see the heart in every single thing that he does. Mm-hmm. Even the, the earliest stuff, there's the attention to detail is ludicrous. Is ludicrous. I think what's lost... Um, with with some people when they watch like Mighty Joe Young is like how much work goes into every single effect, right? When um, Joe jumps and breaks something, all of that stuff has to be also stop motion animated, mm-hmm. and things fall apart, right? Individually pulled across and timed. Um, so like you see the things that he does in Mighty Joe Young. Um, animators today are still baffled by because nobody else would put that much work into it, you know? Yeah, definitely. One of the things is, uh, one of the fascinating things is the creators of Wallace and Gromit really associated Mighty Joe Young with a lot of the way that he, I believe he he specifies the way his hands move and like the way he kind of moved Wallace's Mm. and Gromit's hands. So this is a 
in animation circles, it's a very famous movie. Um, and it's kind of, kind of, unfortunately, kind of forgotten nowadays. Um, in order to actually learn how to do stop motion, though, was incredibly tricky in 1933. Um, there was so much disinformation, uh, and a, so much of people just making shit up. Like, there's like an old Popular Mechanics article, and it just completely made up. How they did it. It's like, oh yeah, Kong was in a suit and we filmed it like this and you know, we used this background plate of the Empire State Building and it was all bullshit. They just made it up. They had a guy with a wire attached to an organ attached to Kong, as if the organ <laughs> was like inflating the suit or something or He's not even he's not he's barely joking. Like there are so no, many. No, that's weird that's real, things. yeah. Yeah. It's it's wild, but luckily, just this is one of the things that you know. With most famous people and most people who are successful, a lot of it really is just being in the right place at the right time. Because he was in L.A. and uh, luckily, the Los Angeles Museum had a big exhibit on filmmaking, and that exhibit included special effects with models and information provided by O'Brien. Um, and, and this included, like, you know, a lot of the uh, dinosaurs from the Lost World and a, you know, a sculpture of, uh, like, a wooden sculpture, one of the Mark Sarasoli uh, wooden stand-ins of the original King Kong. Mm. And it, it, it was incredibly interesting to, uh, you know, Harryhausen. He would study it. He would just stare, sit there for hours looking at all of this stuff. And he still didn't actually end up learning who Willis O'Brien's name uh, was until an article published by Look Magazine, as they actually did a more accurate version uh, of the King Kong effects. And that's when he finally learned his name. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's insane to me. But, uh, you know, in the in the era before, like, the internet, the dark ages, um, <laughs> it was incredibly difficult to track these things down. I'm, when, I'm, when we're talking about the early work of Ray Harryhausen, there is stuff here that I'm like, mm, I'm pretty sure this would hold up in most movies. And one of those is uh, a cave bear uh, a maquette that he made out of, out of his mother's fur coat. <laughs> and this thing looks great. Like this thing looks awesome, um, and I'm I'm really kind of surprised with him going from you know the marionettes to all of a sudden bam he's like I think he's 17 and he made this amazing looking cave bear that is animated beautifully and you're like wow, it's just wild it's just wild and you know speaking of things that are wild, this is a man born in the ni- early 1900s that had parents who supported his love of art what. Yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think it's such, like, um, a reinforcement that, like, greatness is made. You know what I mean? Like, as great as Harryhausen is, as brilliant as he is, if he doesn't have a supportive family, if he doesn't have the breaks that go his way that we'll see, um, that we'll talk about in a few moments, um, it's also the time he's he's bored into as well, right? Um, What he's afforded is... Um, also a huge percentage luck that doesn't take anything away from him, right? Um, but as you said, like as his daughter said, um, I think it's important for artists now to understand um, a lot of becoming successful luck, you know? Yeah, so 100%, 100%. 100%. Um, and his parents had really interesting uh, upbringing. 
things. His father was a machinist, and he made all of the armatures for every Harryhausen film until his death. Now, I don't believe that included this film, as none of these uh, models were actually sculpted by Harryhausen. No, Delgado made the armatures for this film. Yeah, yeah, Delgado did all the stuff for Mighty Joe Young, but aside from that, uh, his father made all of it. And that's really kind of impressive because armatures are not easy to make, especially how, uh, you know, how much motion a lot of these creatures had. Um, and Harry has his mother by the name of Martha. Why did you say that name? <laughs> um, <laughs> Frederick. Uh, she encouraged like all of his interests. Like she would take him to art school and like let him do art classes and tell him like, hey, no, like if you want to do this, like you should do this. Like if this is what you want to do, you should do it. And she would really help him and instill the love of art. And that's like really uh, impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, Frederick, his father, actually did work for RKO on a few uh, sequences. Um, he worked because he was a freelance machinist. So if they needed something, uh, they would have uh, they would bring him in. And I believe he worked on a number of Laurel and Hardy films. I think there was two Laurel and Hardy films that he actually helped to uh, accomplish some of the effects, and that was really cool. I, I, I just to go back to the armatures for a second. Like I, you can I can see how because there's not one way to make an armature, right? No, um, no. There's multiple ways that you can make it. So having that consistency of his father making them for most of the films, I could see being a huge benefit, right? Because you know exactly what you want—the ball and socket joint, or whether you want it to have a specific pin or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, that way, you probably saves time. You know? Yeah. Yeah, 100%, 100%. He got his hands on a 16mm camera from a friend. Uh, he pretty much borrowed it from his friend. I believe his name was Victor. Uh, and the, the, the issue was uh, this thing did not have a function to go frame by frame. So he had to pretty much eyeball it and be like, uh, stop, stop, start, stop, start, and like start the thing, stop the thing, stop the... Th- and he had to manually get it to go as quickly as it could to do frame by frame animation um and that was just kind of insane uh he eventually did get a better camera but i just think it's so kind of fascinating uh that those those early things where when you watch it you're like damn he did like a pretty good job for just going start stop start stop because the the animation still looks quite fluid so i was was really impressed by that stuff yeah you have to remember it's like what 24 frames per shot or something like that so um that's a lot of starting and stopping you know Mm mm-hmm for like one second of film, I think is like twenty four frames. Yeah, so this is sixteen millimeter, sixteen millimeter. So I'm not sure if that's still that same. Yeah, yeah, okay. That yeah, but e- either way, that's a lot of starting and stopping. You know? Oh yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. At seventeen, he actually started work on his own film called The Evolution of the World, and this was a this is I I don't know how he was so ambitious at age 17 to try this out <laughs> because it's supposed to be the entire history of the prehistoric worlds and you're like Harry Housen my man calm down that's a lot of stuff to do um and it never finished because uh, uh Disney's Fantasia came out and he was like as, oh well as Disney will do now and forever co-op Every fucking thing. <laughs> Disney, Disney will ruin everything. Did, Walt uh, Disney was looking in Harry Housen's seventeen-year-old bedroom and just <laughs> ideas. 
<laughs> He's like, ooh, what a great idea for a scene in my animated picture. Even though he never finished Evolution of the World, it did actually end up being an effective showreel uh, for Harryhausen, and he was able to actually showcase his work to people when he went in to see them, which is kind of amazing. I'm about to talk about one of the craziest things of all time. And that is Ray Harryhausen's high school. Because when Ray Harryhausen was in high school, he had a classmate by the name of Margaret Redman. And Margaret Redman was just reading the original script for King Kong with original artwork that fucking she LA. owned. Fucking L.A. Just kids just reading the script for King <laughs> Kong in the fucking classroom. And like... I... Uh, understandably, uh, you know, uh, Harry Hassan was like, uh, oh, my, that's like the real deal. That's Willis O'Brien's work. What? You, how did you get this? And then uh, she was like, oh, yeah, this is my, my dad worked at RKO, worked with O'Brien. So, yes, yeah, I have this. This is cool. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> and she basically was like, hey, why don't you just, you should just call, you should just call up O'Brien. Willis O'Brien's pretty cool, you know? Just go to, he's at MGM right now. Just give him a phone call and, uh, you know. Maybe, Listen, maybe it's one o'clock. He's four bottles in. He'll pop that anybody. <laughs> I mean, you you joke, but the one of, one of the one of the things that happened was that Harryhausen was like O'Brien picked up the phone, mumbled a few syllables, and invited me over to the studio. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> things would not work this way, um, drunk or not, in Hollywood. Like, um, you know, you call up Willis O'Brien today, and he's you have to work as a fucking unpaid. Um, assistant delivering coffee for 17 years until you just give up on your dreams. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, like, um, like we said, there's a lot of luck involved with this. And also, mm-hmm. O'Brien being an, a great person, you know, um, helps with this yeah, as well. Yeah, like, O'Brien just invited him into the, in the, into the studio, which, like, all of the War Eagles pre-production was happening. And Ray Harryhausen brought over his models and, you know, O'Brien was, like, a really great teacher in that he was supportive, but he was also very constructive with his criticism. Um, and, sorry. No, well, I would say, um, I just want to add, in the year of our Lord, 2021, if you are a young artist and somebody who works on set invites you to their room, do not go. Yeah. <laughs> do not go. <laughs> do not follow in Harry House's footsteps and go to a movie set uh, because you call them up. If they're that excited for you to come and you're a child, do not go, is all I'm saying. No, definitely not in modern era. But uh, <laughs> O'Brien was three sheets to the wind and, and brought him over. That's not um, any better in 2021. <laughs> I, I'm just joking about the drunk part. I do not know. Uh, but, you know, O'Brien, uh, you know, was very nice to him. And, like, he brought, um, he actually invited uh, Ray Harryhausen to come over with his folks for dinner and showcase some of his, some of his work. And O'Brien sat down and was like, hey, you know, the, you know, your, some of your legs look like sausages. Why don't you go take some anatomy lessons and stuff like that? Like, he was, he was very nice to it. And Ray Harryhausen was just kind of floored um, that he just was a chill dude. Um, and, you know, you see that, uh, you know, Harryhausen took this to heart and later on he would do much of the same things where he would really kind of mm-hmm. mentor young artists and kind of encourage them. Um, and, you know, Willis O'Brien helped to start that. So, 
Um, you know, Willis O'Brien, the only good man in Hollywood. Harryhausen took his advice. He, he took anatomy courses. He took art classes. And he ended up attending, actually, art college at USC. He would go to things like ballet in order to learn the craft of movement. He would go to acting courses. Um, he really was kind of going all out to really kind of get into the movies and really learn how to hone his craft in a lot of interesting ways because I, I don't know if people would really make that connection in it, it, at least I wouldn't if I was trying to animate something. I wouldn't think, oh, I need to go watch ballet dancers or I know need to go watch somebody who actually has control over their form to kind of learn about it. Yeah. I, like, I think that stuff is really fascinating um, and really kind of shows that um, if you want to be a good artist, you have to watch good art. Um, and, and also yeah. I think you have to realize um, – if you're talking about Muddy Joe Young, the character, Ray Harryhausen is the actor, right? Mm -hmm. So in the sense that he is actually the one making his character remote, right? So he is acting through his stop motion, and I think that's incredibly important to understand, right? And that's what separates Harryhausen from um, other artists, I think, in, in many ways. Yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Uh, you know everything was going good, Kelly. What do you think? What do you think happened? What do you think? What 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 weird block would uh, show up in the middle of the forties? Oh, um, World War Two might have happened around then. Am I wrong? World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> Time to fight some Nazis. Oh. Or if you're Ray Harryhausen, make a special film. <laughs> <laughs> a training video so that you know, hey, maybe you shouldn't send me into war. Uh, here's, a, here's a training video I made called How to Build a Gorge. Yes, I, I love Harryhausen, but I can't see him shooting Nazis. You know what well, I mean? Well, the funny thing is, he, like, when the war kind of got up and running, um, he was kind of working with George Powell a little bit during this time period. And he started to take military photography courses because he's like, oh, maybe I'll be a military, like a military photographer so I don't mm -hmm. have to like shoot people and stuff like that. And he was like, yeah, I got really lucky because I later learned that like military photographers were really killed a lot. When they, <laughs> get, they were not seen as important and they got killed a lot. Yeah, Harryhausen did not good. have the benefit of seeing full metal jacket before. <laughs> so what he ended up doing, so he actually did go to basic training, but once uh, our good friend Frank Capra, the man who knew about wonderful lives, uh, <laughs> <laughs> got got a hold uh, of this training video, like the stop motion training video that Harryhausen made. Um, he basically said, oh, okay, uh, you are coming into the special service division and you're going to help us make wartime propaganda, baby. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that was... <laughs> he saw a training video and, and recognized the genius. <laughs> yeah. He's like, damn, we got a whole bunch of people in there. Put, put monkeys in there. And, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I, she's like, I don't, I don't really know why you showed this video of Son of Kong of the monkeys dancing in bikinis. I don't think we're gonna use that, Ray. But the rest of it is golden. <laughs> Harryhausen, of course, never went overseas, but he did spend the wartime traveling around America, and he would do anything the service division needed. So that would be things like he would load film, he would be an assistant cameraman, he would implement special effects work, he would do a lot of acting during this time period, mm. and he even sculpted for the iconic 
World War II propaganda character. Private Snafu. I know big big private snafu fans in the house. <laughs> Jason, uh, you know, collects private snafu, but um, oh, that that was my uh, nickname while I was in the army was private snafu. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure it probably was. Um, <laughs> not Corporal Fubar, but uh, <laughs> no, private snafu. I didn't get the corporal, you know. So uh, funny, funny enough, um, I believe this was uh, a, the a lot of the private snafu stuff was done by Theodore Gazel who is also known as Dr. Seuss. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> I love that you were, thought you were revealing something huge with fucking Peter. <laughs> I don't know. Some of them might not know. Anyways, uh, most of the work that uh, got removed from uh, Dr. Seuss's back catalog was around this time period. No surprise. Uh, <laughs> uh, after the war, he, he kind of started working, uh, Harry Hasen started working in the ad department, and he started working more with George Powell for his iconic Puppet Tunes series. Now, to be perfectly honest, these Puppet Tunes were really racist. Uh, he worked on the character Jasper, and um, yeah, there are some uh, things with Jasper, as he is a very much a racist caricature. Um so racist, in fact, that old cartoons of Jasper were not allowed to be shown in 1960s Texas. Holy shit. That's pretty <laughs> racist. Well, that is pretty fucking racist. Ray, what the fuck? <laughs> well, <laughs> what, what's funny is, I, it, this is I, what I think is, in many ways, this is kind of comes from naivete on, mm-hmm. uh, uh, on Harryhausen's part. Um, this didn't seem to be malicious racism. It doesn't excuse it. But he, every time it came up, he's like, oh, it's just like Huckleberry Finn. He's just doing his stuff. Like, this is just, he's a black black boy, but he's, he's cool. He's a character. And when you look at the design, you're like, oh, pretty racist design. I mean, I love Harryhausen, but this character is it's insanely bad. racist. It's bad. It's bad. Uh, Willis O'Brien briefly worked with him on one of the shorts called um, Jasper and the Choo Choo. Oh, God. And Willis O'Brien was like, fuck this shit. <laughs> Left. I, I think it was because he just didn't like the way that George Powell was doing animation. Uh, but I really like the idea that like, like Willis O'Brien was like, I am not doing this shit. What the fuck? Who designed this character? I've had five bottles of whiskey today, and I won't even fucking look at this. <laughs> oh goodness gracious! But yeah, that's uh, that's not great. After after the work on Puppet Soons, um, you know, Harry hasn't really. He did not like George Powell's process. He refined it to do his own fairy tale work. And while he was kind of making his own fairy tales, he was signed by O'Brien as a retainer for the film. Mighty Joe Young, whoa, we're there. Wow, wow, wow. An hour into this podcast, we are just getting from <laughs> Carrie House on Mighty Joe Young. There's a lot to go. So if you need to get yeah. a snack, you need to, you know, take a walk around, get a drink. You know, you need you to know. read classic issues of Private Snafu. Uh, you know. You Go look up you. Jasper the Puppetoon online and then erase your search history. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, please. <laughs> oh, God. The effects team for Mighty Joe Young included 47 members, and they were all housed at stage one of the RKO Pathé lot, and an optical printer was used extensively. 
Well, I don't know why I'm doing a weird deliveries extensively. It's been an hour. We, we, it just happens, you know. It just happens. Now. It's <laughs> this is now an time. ASMR podcast. While working on Mighty Joe Young, Harryhausen would actually continue work on his own fairy tale films. Harryhausen designed some of the metal armatures for Mighty Joe Young, basing it off of a gorilla skeleton, but they were all built from scratch by Marcel Delgado. And it was at the cost of about $1,200. Um, That's a lot, then. A yeah. Lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, although, when you think about it, I had a $1.8 million budget. Uh, it's not too, too bad. Um, the animation actually began in 1947, and it took about 14 months. Uh, the principal photography was three months, and the picture had a two years of pre-production and another year for co- the composite and animation work. They did a lot of things other than just Joe. Um, There are, of course, miniature human figurines, mini lions, horses, and a number of vehicles had to be sculpted as well. Harry Cunningham designed stop-motion projectors that were used in the creating of the effects of Marty Joe Young. And I can't find much about Harry Cunningham. Like, he did some animation on this, um, but other than that... Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, he did like a little bit, um, but other than that, like I don't really find, didn't really find too much about Harry Cunningham, unfortunately, because he sounds like an interesting character. I mean, he literally was the designing stop motion projectors. He had to be pretty cool. Um, Cooper actually decided that the animation sequences were taking too long, and he brought in E.B. Gibson. And uh, he assigned them to the basement. Like, so he brought in E.B. Gibson and another, I think it was someone in his family or a cousin or an assistant. I'm not sure who else. Well, to be clear, that's the basement sequences, not they were sent to the basement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Him and his family were not fortunate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. They had to do the, the sequences where, yeah. you know, he, uh, Mighty Joe Young was in the basement, which Locked bummed stuff. Yeah, and which made uh, Harryhausen kind of bummed because he was like, oh, I really want to do the drunk sequence. (laughs) He would eventually get to do it, but we'll get to that soon. Um, He ended up getting transferred from that to do the very first appearance of Joe with the lion cage. This scene is crazy. Well, so so, like, the scene is the lion in the cage with Joe, like, rocking the cage, right? The, the lion's not in the cage, right? So what they've done is put a black card inside of the miniature cage and front projected the stop motion of the lion into the cage and then animated everything around it, which is insane, right? Yeah, watching the film, I couldn't f- – I was just watching it and trying to figure out how did they do this? How did that, they do that's this? how they did it, right? So yeah. they, they have, like, front projected the image <clears throat> into the cage <laughs> – and then animated everything around it with bananas, right? Yeah, very crazy. O'Brien actually filmed the background plate, which actually had the lion, and the lion was like on a platform, and they used like wires to kind of like make it rock back and forth, and like mm-hmm. I can only imagine that was terrifying. Right? Yeah, and then and then you know Joe starts breaking the cage open, right? So you're animating with wires every piece that comes off of that cage. So that stop motion flies away, and then a miniature lion comes out. And yeah, looks. and and like you know, Harry hasn't had to count the individual frames of the lion moving in the cage, and then match his animation to it. Crazy. That, yeah, that's the stuff that like, I'm like, I could never do that. 
right? Like that level of patience and attention to tiny details like that, it, it boggles my mind. Like I can't even conceptualize it. Yeah, 100%. Um, six weeks later, good old Buzz Gibson um, was let go of the project. He left. And uh, none of their footage actually appeared in the final production. It Again, there was never, never anything that was definitive about the why of this, but you can kind of surmise that Willis O'Brien was uh, probably not too happy that E.B. Gibson was brought in uh, because everything that happened in the, the real tragic circumstances that was Son of Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, that's probably why E.B. Gibson eventually left. Um Harryhausen then kind of had to redo everything that E.B. Gibson and his brother already did. Um, Apparently, one of the things that was giving Gibson a lot of trouble was the smaller models. And, uh, you know, Harryhausen used these smaller models to really great effect. Um, I also wonder if maybe some of the difficulties for Gibson was that um, he is probably getting older, right? Like, you know, one of the things that you kind of have to consider about this time period is to do all these very individual movements um would not be easy on the hands right so if you got Mm -hmm. something like arthritis it would not be easy to do Uh, also like the the things that Harryhausen's do does in this film have so many small moving parts right yes probably like if if buzz had come in from conception and did it himself there wouldn't be the, the attention to detail the minute details that there is in this film right so he'd probably be able to finish it. Yeah. It would probably look a lot more like Son of Kong. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and one of the things about Mighty Joe Young is that it really does push the envelope, right? They, they originally wanted Joe to be more of a traditional gorilla. Of course, Cooper wanted a traditional gorilla. Every time someone has Cooper uh, what he wants, he says, Give me a gorilla! Give me a gorilla! Look at this gorilla! Give me this gorilla! I want photos of the gorilla! Um... He specifically chose uh, a, a very famous gorilla from the Lincoln Park Zoo named Bushman. Marcel Delgado ended up giving the the you know giving the creature big, large eyes because again, Delgado. I think Delgado and O'Brien they really fall in love with their creatures when they design them, and they always want to give them more life and more expression, despite Cooper's uh, hatred of it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, and I think the eyes are really one of the um, standout features of um, Mr. Joseph Young, right? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Giving him those the doll's doll's eyes, it's you know, the doll's eyes. Giles' fra- <laughs> eyes moved frame by frame, almost like he was being animated by some stop motion maniac. <laughs> uh, Welcome to my remake of Jaws, where all about him <laughs> watching E.B. Gibson animate a shark. Uh, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> they actually uh, went and they they filmed a bit of the famous gorilla and him doing stuff to study his movement. But the problem is, like, this is this is a gorilla in a zoo. It wasn't doing shit. Like, like you know, especially back then, like, you know they weren't, like, properly enriching that gorilla, right? Like, zoos nowadays have problems, uh, you know, getting their happy, happy creatures. Quick trivia for Jaws. Um, Robert Shaw, the only person to drink more on set than Willis O'Brien. 
Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, so they used very little of this footage. Um, and they only they did get, take a few mannerisms from this, this gorilla, but not too many. Marcel and Victor Delgado, along with Scott Ridiker, did attempt some animation on the film, and some of their stuff did make it in the final picture, but a lot of it was really kind of hard for them to do. Again, mm. people step in, try to do what Harryhausen's doing at, what, 28, 29 years old, and failing miserably. People have been, not miserably, uh, some of them miserably, some of them, but all of them failing to stand up to a man doing his first feature film. Well, yeah, and again, like, Marcel and Victor Delgado, like, those guys are your sculptors. Like, I yeah. really don't, I mean, I, I wonder if maybe they just wanted to try it, which is, like, which is fair to try and to try and do it. But they're, they're not really, like, obviously um, animators. They're not primarily known for their animation. They're known for their beautiful yeah. sculpting. So, and, and I think that that just goes to how much of, like, a mysterious art this was and unknown of how to do it, you know? Yeah, no, of, mm-hmm. of course, of course. The um, the lasso scene in this m- movie was crazy. Like, they used that. every single trick that they had. We're talking map paintings, rear projections, lassos, riders being flipped from scene to scene as real to miniatures. Mm-hmm. Stop motion riders with little wires wrapped around Joe's neck, mouth, and arms. That sounded much more sensual than it was meant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the integration too, like can't be overlooked, right? Because you're going from stop motion to like real riders, right? And you're going back and forth, yeah. back and forth, and it's practically seamless even today. You know? Yeah, it, it really it plays really well. I mean, yeah. like I said I saw it for the first time in 2021, and I was just kind of blown away by it. Yeah, like it's one of those things where you're like, wow, like they did they did not make this movie easy for them, which I no. think is just kind of a well, well, I think again, like man, this is O'Brien being like, let's push the envelope because he was in there from the beginning. He was like, let's push the envelope, the envelope, and I know just the guy who can push it. And yeah, and, and the Harryhausen is the only one willing to do it. Everyone else is sort of like, fuck this. After a <laughs> yeah, while, exactly. You know? <laughs> the 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 rope sequence was actually again taken from Guanji, um, and it was done uh, mostly by Harryhausen, but O'Brien and Pete Peterson did help out to do some animation on it, and that's one of the scenes that does have just a slight bit of O'Brien in the final picture, which is nice. I'm glad that he's I'm glad that he's got some animation in there, right? Mm-hmm. In order to achieve it, they actually had to fix a pole that was about Joe's height and the Cowboys had to lasso it. And uh, then Joe's model was kind of being replaced where the, the pole was by Harryhausen and adding miniature lassos to match the real ones. Now this is really kind of the birth of Dynamation, uh, which was what uh, Harryhausen would do uh, in his own work much uh, in a few years. And that was really that idea of having them on real sets, right? Like, the um you know not having them on miniature sets but having them incorporated in the real world and i think this is one of those the, one of those steps into that occasion harryhausen was dedicated to acting for the role of joe and he reportedly ate carrots and celery on his tea breaks to better mimic a gorilla <laughs> people are obsessed with this fucking 
this piece of trivia. Like, li- none of the books agree on anything except for this one fucking piece of trivia. <laughs> they all stop and have a paragraph about him eating fucking carrots and celery like it's, um, you know, opening the fucking tomb of King Tut. Like I love it. I love it. It's incredible. It's, it, it's interesting, though, because, like, you know, um, Ray Harryhausen was briefly vegetarian, um, and he was vegetarian because when he was in the war doing all the propagandas, they did have to film at a butcher. Like, they had to film at one oh, of those. Yeah, that'll uh, do it. Hor- yeah. Horrific factory farming. Um, and he got to meet, uh, you know, Leatherface and all of his friends. <laughs> 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 the Sawyer clan was like, uh, yeah. hey, hey, you that man with the gorillas? I like to take his face and put it on my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, he was horrified, and so he stopped. Like he was basically like, oh my god, I can't, I can't eat meat, meat anymore. He eventually had to go back onto meat when he realized he was losing too much weight. Um, but again, it's because like you know, being vegetarian now is a lot different than being vegetarian right. then. Right. Um, we have a lot of alternatives oh, yeah. that really make it a lot easier oh, for yeah. us. Like me eating a package of fucking Oreos and being like, you know, these are Reagan while well, I'm eating them. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. You can get – vegans can be fat now. It's good. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that, was our, that was the big revelation that I had that allowed, that allowed me to, to become vegan is that I found out I could still be fat. So, like, you know, otherwise I'd be eating meat. <laughs> Oh, God. <clears throat> Cooper, uh, trademark, uh, continued to be impatient. He's like, come on. We'll get these fucking animation done. What do you think you're making in there? King Kong? Uh, <laughs> and uh, he brought in Pete Peterson, who was originally just a grip, and he actually made him animate. So this guy was like, <laughs> this guy was just a grip. <laughs> Cooper was like, hey, you want to animate? Do some animation. Do it now. Do it now. Uh, Cooper is Pete- dying to replace <laughs> At every fucking turd, Harryhausen. I don't know, like, did, what is going did, on? like, did, like, Harryhausen, like, He's bringing people who are shoes? living on the street, animate some of these sequences. <laughs> like, mister, I'm just a paper boy. I want to do this. <laughs> extra, extra, do animation for me, or else you're going to die, kid. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't really know. I think, I, I can't tell if, like, Cooper maybe didn't like Harryhausen or he was just very impatient. As they I mean, talking. again, I really think um, based on some of the stuff I know, I think Cooper's getting pressure from Ford and that's how like this is being played out. Like that's what my thought process on this, at least again, that's conjecture, but that's what I think is happening. Right. Right. Well, luckily uh, Pete Peterson is, was actually pretty skilled um, at animation, uh, even though he really didn't have too much uh, experience at it. And, like, you know, Pete Peterson is kind of a hero. The dude had multiple sclerosis and wore leg braces, mm. and he was still able to mm. do stop motion. And it was apparently extremely painful for him. Mm. Um, Interestingly, this is a set that has, you know, has people on set who are disabled. Right, yeah, like yeah. not just Peterson, as we will get to as well, right? right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good point. And um, you know, Peterson uh, really liked to add humor into these sequences, and it's really, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, that kind of kind of throws me because you just think about how much pain he was in to uh, to present humor, 
Like, mm-hmm. he was trying to make people laugh, and he was putting himself through pain to do it. And I think I think that's a really interesting point. Um, he did a lot of the things, like, you know, there's that scene where, like, uh, Joe is kind of, like, patiently, like, kind of strumming his fingers near the end of the film as he's riding on the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. Um, he's delicately peeling a banana. And, uh, you know, all of these things really kind of brought some humor Oh, um, I-, I was going to say, like, I think we, uh, you know, artists like to project the sides of ourselves that are not the most obvious. Like, for instance, um, all the horror people that I know are the funniest people I know on the planet. Right. Yes, right. Um, yeah. And all the comedians I know are all miserable pricks, you know. <laughs> so th- I think that that's like sort of how that goes, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's fair. Um, you know, a lot of these broad, more broad humor sequences got cut. Um, and I think that's kind of unfortunate. I would really kind of love to see some of this. Unfortunately, as we know, uh, anything that was cut from a uh, Merritt C. Cooper mm. film ended up in a furnace somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, like, the spitting stuff, like, on the back, too, is Peterson... I think so. I yeah. do think, uh, I yeah, I think a lot part. of that is. I yeah. really like that stuff, right? Usually Me too. Uh, the cops. But, like, I think... Um, the police. <laughs> I think, like, Harryhausen um, really hated Son of Kong, right? Yeah, you get that point. Because he, he really treated it like Son of Kong was the, the, the over... It went too far. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. He loses gorilla-ness is kind of how he, he looks at it, right? And I think he thinks there's a delicate balance in, like, the spitting stuff. Um, I think he feels like it's too son of Kong. Right. Right? Yep. Nope. That that does so. make sense. Uh, and I'm sure Cooper hated it just because Cooper was like, hey, people having fun, they should be in war. Oh, <laughs> should, if you have time to laugh, you have time to kill a commie. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking gorilla spitting, send him to war. Put him in a plane. <laughs> Put him in a plane. That'll be a flying coffin for you. Um, the tug of war scene between Joe was actually uh, done with a ratchet mechanism that slowly pulled the rope uh, to Joe's side, mm-hmm. and then he would a- he was animated on top of the sequence and matched the real rope with the animated one, which is really cool because it's really hard to tell in the final. No, film. yeah, it really looks good. Yeah, it looks so good. And a lot of these were professional wrestlers. There are people who were grapplers, and you know, people who actually had business business being in this scene except for one guy who is just a bartender from across the street and was needed to fill the scene i like to think that o'brien you, you're was like, hairy enough get over here <laughs> I, like to, I like to think that o'brien was like hey uh instead of paying my tab gonna switch in the movie because <laughs> willis o'brien had run up a bartender a, a fucking um <laughs> $70,000 bar tab. <laughs> a King Kong-sized bar tab. <laughs> uh, the organ grinder scene that causes Joe to get upset was actually uh, Scott Whitaker was really uh, instrumental in rotoscoping every coin that were being thrown at Joe mm. to match Joe's arm movements, and completing this took months. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there's a lot of emotion in that scene, and that's one of uh, Harryhausen's favorite scenes in the movie. Mine, too. It's incredible. That scene is so, so good. So good. It's so good. It blows my mind that that dude drew every one of those coins. Yeah, I'm like, fucking... man, that's some real That's some real shit, man. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I thought it was funny. I thought it was real shit, man. He's cool. I like him. <laughs> In the scene where Joe destroys the nightclub, the debris that follows Joe had to be animated as well. Like, so yeah, all the stuff that's, like, getting crazy, like, all this debris being pulled away with stop motion and had to be, like, pulled away with wires frame by frame mm-hmm. when he's crashing into thatch-roofed cottages like he's Trogdor. Um, you know, it's really kind of crazy. Uh, he, he, the Most of the lines in that scene were actually done with miniatures, uh, although they did build a tilted room. So the real lion would slide backwards oh, at the that's table. Oh, did that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm like, crazy. I'm like, who had to like, who do you think was like in charge of that room? Like, <laughs> I, like, I, I, probably Cooper. Imagine? He loved to torture animals. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> probably. Uh, <laughs> probably uh, was Cooper. Take me a room so I can fuck with this lion. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, like, um, when I was uh, watching the commentary for this, right, like, Ken Ralston, um, if you don't know who Ken Ralston is, a very accomplished um, uh, special effects guy himself did, like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was, like, the animating director on that. Um, he, he was like, I still to this day, Harry, have no idea how you did this. Like, it, it, explain to me how this, all my life, I have no idea how this was done the scene where Joe is like jumping across, right? So that's like, and that's a man dedicated to just that art, not being able to see through the stuff that happens on Muddy Joe Young. And it's um, everybody who's involved in stop motion animation or um, has an appreciation for special effects reveres this film. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's just worth pointing out that like this scene in particular um, and and the lion tilting cage i think um in the lasso are like the big ones you know right oh for sure for sure the orphanage at the final and the finale of the movie was actually a five foot high plaster miniature shot at high speed to allow the flames to feel as though they were in proportion with the real people they were of course added to the lower part of the sequence by linwood dunn who was really the optical master for king kong son of kong and of course this film here and there was a lot of extra smoke and flame that were added for, like, it, it, it to really make it seem like, uh, you know, an orphanage was on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> most of the animation was done by Ray, although, again, we have O'Brien, uh, who did a few shots of Joe on the tree, and Marcel Delgado actually did a little Joe model shot for the tree climbing in the long shot. So... Marcel Delgado, you know, again, yeah. master of many, many art forms. Um, he did manage to get some of his work in the final film. So. I want um, anybody who's listening to this to go back and watch the scene. Um, not where he's climbing up, and it looks great, but when he rescues the girl at the top um, and brings her down the tree, like the final sequence, right? Mm-hmm. The movement. I mean, that girl's a miniature. It's not, you know, that's, that girl is a built miniature. Um, and the movement that's put into just that miniature movie. It'd be very easy just for him to go up and just pick up this doll, essentially, mm-hmm. and bring it down the tree. But they have made the girl move as if she's in her own panic. Um, and that attention to detail is, to me, just mind-blowing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would I, if you have the opportunity, just watch that one scene and what is what goes into climbing that tree and then back down that tree and all the movement involved 
really crazy stuff. Crazy yeah. stuff. Uh, in all, there were six models made of uh, of Mighty Joe Young, and they ranged in size from five to eighteen inches. They actually did build like a full size torso, but they didn't think it looked too good on screen, and they just used the miniatures. Uh, mm. Sorry, they just used the like the stop motion stuff. So. Um, that's kind of amazing, and of course, I'm sure that full torso was burnt in a fire yeah. right after he decided it wasn't going to be used. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Cooper was like, "Hey, bonfire tonight, boys, in the parking lot. We're not using it. Bring your kids all over the place. We'll burn this monkey down and cook some marshmallows on it." Um, the the rubber that they had w- to to make the mouth was like really tight. Um, and they had to add a screw to the jaw so that it could be, like, you know, turned with an Allen wrench to be open and closed incrementally, which is crazy, which is Mm. crazy when you think about all these things. Um, the eyes, of course, were uh, doll's eyes, glass (laughs) doll's eyes, that could be arranged with the tip of an eraser with careful precision. And they would have to move them very carefully because they didn't want Joe to look like he was being cross-eyed. Um, and then they added enamel-covered metal teeth. Like this crazy. This this miniature yeah. is crazy. And like you know, when you're if you're listening, like these are improvements to Kong. Like right, like these are mm-hmm. things that they did not do in King Kong. Um, and you know, a lot of uh, there were new new blood in there, and there was many years after King Kong, so there were. Uh, advancements, and I think I think some people don't really get the full scope of that. They're like, "Oh, all stop motion looks the same." And I was like, "No, no, no, no. no. They, they improve the stuff. There's differences. It's amazing." One of the models actually still survives today and is seen in that Ray Harryhausen exhibit. It is um, not looking great. <laughs> it's not looking great. It's very decayed. Um, and they actually said, like, well, this one was not actually sculpted by Ray, so we are not going to re-sculpt it. We're going to leave it as is. And I don't think a lot... they... Oh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, because a lot of them, they hired someone to specifically recreate Ray's work, and that was someone Ray worked with and kind of helped to teach how his models were. And he kind of built, rebuilt the models using the, the same armatures, but they didn't want to mess with um, Delgado's work. And I don't think they know exactly where the other three are, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's six, but I'm talking about the four uh, big ones, right? Right, right. Um, uh, Terry Moore claims the maid stole one of them from her apartment, but um, who knows? Who knows about that, right? Um, there, there was, I, I, there was, there was talk that one of them was at one point in a museum, but yes. it was incorrectly labeled as King Kong. Yes. Which is. Which is kind of funny. Yeah, that, that one went to a journalist who then dedicated to the London um, Museum of Motion Pictures, I think. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Mm, fancy. <laughs> all, all of these are actually really made in the exact same manner as King Kong, which was called the build-up method, where they would use foam rubber, dental dam, and cotton, and slowly build up all of the muscles and all of the ideas of you know of how that the the getting the muscles right um is really an important step of this because once you put the latex over if you messed up the muscles it'll look off um and delgado was an expert at the muscle part of this yeah honestly this was this is probably delgado one of delgado's greatest work 
Um, that and the dinosaurs. I think Delgado is the dinosaurs are like perfect. I love Delgado's dinosaurs. That's gonna be. That sounds like a band. Delgado's, Delgado's dinosaurs. <laughs> Delgado's dinosaurs, and we're here to rock <laughs> and be forgotten in most documentaries. <laughs> uh, they um, they actually. So, what did they use for the skin of Mighty Joe Young? You ask. Well, sorry, the fur. Um, well, whatever fur it was, it was treated by a taxidermist uh, by the name of George Lofgren. And it was either, it was one of the three. And it was either an unborn lamb, an unborn goat, or an unborn calf. While Harryhausen's eating celery. Why is this like some satanic ritual shit going on <laughs> Yeah, here? exactly. Rock and I mean, roll! Hey. <laughs> Rock and roll! Make sure you treat the fur so it doesn't show up in the movements of the model. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Cooper's like, rip that unborn goat out of its mother's <laughs> Cooper's like, why are we using an unborn lion? That lion looked at me rough. We're running low on time. Don't wait for that goat to be born. Rip it out of the mother. (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) I don't think Cooper was that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, uh, of the models, uh, Harryhausen's favorite was actually named after actress Jennifer Ford. And this was done lovingly, not like in a way to insult her. Um, But he had seen test footage for the movie Duel in the Sun, which was filming nearby. And he felt like in the footage, like she almost looked animated. And he was like, he kind of became like, he was like, oh, wow, this is this. This lady's like really cool. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to name my favorite model after her. And and Harryhausen wasn't really being like a creep here. Like he no, um, they had to shared the same area. And yet they had to wait to look at the dailies Mm. while um, Duel in the Sun was was um, looking at their dailies, so they they were mm. sharing that space. So that's why I watched so much of that film. Yeah, he definitely was not watching a movie about an uncle reincarnated as a horse. Oh, we'll get to that. Um, so the very first <laughs> scenes that Harryhausen did shoot were actually the one in the club basement miniature, um, and he finally he finally got to go back to this and do the do it for the final picture because yeah because he he shot scenes in the club basement and then he got kicked off because yeah. they brought an eb for the the drunken scene and then he kind of came back um after eb left and had to he had to redo most of the work um so all of the work because none of eb's footage appears in the final picture um so he would rear project joe in the jail cell he would push out the like the lips with clay and he would use this to make sure that it would kind of give the appearance of drinking. And he would use glycerin to give kind of the idea of, like, alcohol kind of spilling <laughs> out of his mouth when he was drinking. And, like, damn, like, that's crazy, right? Psycho like, shit. Yeah, like, oh, my <laughs> goodness. Like, this is, like, hereditary. Like, <laughs> I, was like I am your mother, Joe. <laughs> He's making Joe drink, and he's looking at fucking Willis O'Brien like, this is you, motherfucker. Oh, no. <laughs> no, he loved, he loved I, they, they, Willis yeah, O'Brien. They loved each other. He loved Obi. Um, Vanessa Harryhausen actually reported that the, the fist smash that Joe always does is, like, directly from Harryhausen. 
Um, and he, because she said that she, she saw him do similar movements every time, he, like when he was frustrated, he would like kind of like smash the table and he'd be like, ah, it's like Mighty Joe Young, which I thought was very funny. Um, also, a lot of this stuff did kind of come from, um, you know, chimpanzees, right? Because um, Harry Hausner would spend a lot of time at the zoo. Um, there are also scenes where, like, you know, Joe makes a noise, but he doesn't really know what the noise is. And this is another thing observed by chimps and observed in chimpanzees by Harryhausen. Uh, the idea that he didn't know his own strength and they would kind of like mix, you know, they tried to make sure that they didn't go too far uh, when mixing human and animal traits. They wanted to make sure that he wasn't too human as again, Harryhausen was really worried about crossing that barrier that they did in Son of Kong. Which sort of makes Son of Kong like um, an important work for this, right? Like, it's the litmus test of, like, what's good special effects, right? And what um, creates that um, effect that it appears to be too human, you know? Right. It's like the uh, stop-motion version of the Uncanny Valley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that, um, you know, as, like, there's been CG that's created that, right? Like, the Scorpion King, I think, was so Classic. horrendous mm. that, Classic. like, people oh, use man. that as a litmus <laughs> test, right? Oh, man, that photorealistic I love him. Um, <laughs> looks exactly like the rock actually but you know. oh 100 percent i you know i i once met the rock and he did look like he was rendered in the playstation <laughs> one very surprising he did look like his face was melting off his skull <laughs> he, did, he did look like he was a clay figure that was out in the sun for too yeah. long um harryhausen actually ended up meeting john ford and in the only time that anyone had a nice experience with John Ford, uh, Ford was nice. Ford was like, hey, you did a good job. Like, congratulations. He, like, shook Harry Harrison's hand. And actually, like, this was, like, notable for Harry Harrison because he felt like this was a confidence boost. And I find that story insane because no one else ever <laughs> told a good story about John Ford. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like, people always be like, oh, Ford was a, Ford, Ford, he had a romantic heart, but he was a uh, dick. We'll, like, <laughs> we will be talking about um, Ford we and dicks shortly. <laughs> <laughs> In 2005, when they actually re-recorded the soundtrack for Mighty Joe Young, Harryhausen actually kind of was part of this recording when he was clashing some cymbals to incorporate into the beautiful Dreamer track. Aww. Aww. I love that. It's very fun. Um, they did win the, the Oscar for special effects uh, in oh. 1950, and uh, Harryhausen did attend the, the award sequence with with O'Brien, and they got the you know they got the Oscar, but the Oscar was not in O'Brien's name. It was like in the producer's name, mm. and uh, for in, for his credit, uh, Cooper said no, this is yours, and like gave it to him to keep basically one sequence we didn't talk about that i um, wanted to bring up was the in what jogged my memory was the beautiful dreamer was the um piano scene where right Joe lifts right um lifts her up into the air right lifts terry moore into the air um and that was actually achieved by like having a giant jack like a car jack but big enough mm. to actually lift her up because some of those scenes she's actually playing the piano some of them it's a miniature of terry moore playing the piano but um, what happens is they have a jack that lifts her up on that platform and then animate Joe over that jack so mm. that it appears he's holding her. So I just wanted to bring that back to talk about that scene because it's you know one Amazing, of the most famous right? scenes from the movie. 
Yeah, yeah it no, it's very like, unsafe. Yeah, oh. it's, one, it's very unsafe. <laughs> they um, didn't care about the lives of actors. Come on. <laughs> um, and I also want to point out we're an hour and a half into this podcast and only talked about Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> Look, so there's a lot it. to talk about, um, and uh, even though they did win the uh, the Academy Award, it didn't help O'Brien's career. Uh, Harryhausen would eventually make his own career. Um, Willis O'Brien, um, we'll we'll eventually talk about his other works, but unfortunately, he really never did get to this point again. This was this was the end of the the high period for uh, yeah O'Brien's life. Now we get to the most uh, the most unappreciated part of of King Kong. Um, Ruth Rose, the writer, the screenwriter, the adventurer herself, Ruth Rose. Uh, all around no, badass. All around badass. Uh, no reports as to whether or not she actually ended up making money on this film instead of getting, like, I don't know, what was it, like 10 bucks on really? the original King Kong? Yeah. She, did, she did not get much in the original she, King Kong. She got um, Willis O'Brien's empties to turn in for... <laughs> She was she was brought on to script a giant monkey picture. Um, Rose is actually encouraged to give the film a lighter touch than the original King Kong. Um, so that's probably why it doesn't end in a complete tragedy. Um, again, Ruth Rose had to re- provide translations for the pro- production code for the fictional African dialect used in the film. Again, like, you know, I think maybe if they had actually incorporated the... Like, if she already had the translations, like, if she had to make them, why wouldn't you just put those as subtitles, I think? Because, mm-hmm. like, I think I think one of the, the things that we have against, uh, that we talked about in, in, in opposition of Mighty Joe Young is, is that kind of lack of, uh, uh, of any African characters having anything to do. Yeah, right? I, I, Terry Moore claims um, that... They were actually speaking Swahili, but I have no, I don't know if I believe that. I don't believe so. I mean, we're, we're talking like, you know, um, maybe, maybe like, but again, maybe that was what like Cooper said. Like, I don't speak Swahili. Don't worry about that. I've, I've been to Swahili myself. Killed a few lions there and I took their babies. We're going to make another Kong with them. I mean, uh, I, what I really love about this script is it's just Ruth Rose roasting the fuck out of Cooper. Oh, <laughs> so it's hard. It's so hard. It's re- it really is great. Um, in Early in the script, there was this idea of two gorillas, like, kind of duking it out. Um, and whoever the drunks at the nightclub were written to replace the scene. I think mm. the drunks still work, but the, the scene really kind of sounds kind of amazing. Because uh, it was the scene that o- O'Brien himself reportedly came up with, and the two gorillas were like fighting on a cable car in the San Francisco hills. Okay, I'm like, that's that sounds cool. That sounds pretty cool. An idea, like a very similar idea, and final fight would actually appear in King Kong versus Prometheus, that mm. Willis O'Brien script that was eventually stolen by uh, world's greatest criminal John Beck and uh, made uh, sold to. Toho and eventually became King Kong versus Godzilla, but King Kong versus Prometheus does have some of those ideas into it, which is kind of interesting. O'Brien and Harryhausen had actually attended a number of boxing matches in order to prepare for the scenes. Mm-hmm. I would love to watch boxing with a sloshed <laughs> O'Brien. Oh, yes. Like, can you imagine? Because <laughs> you know that Irish drunk had shit to say about the, the fucking. <laughs> I, could, I could kick his ass. I could kick his ass. 
Um, other other early script ideas featured a scene where Joe's mother was killed by lions. Again, this this see this is where like Kelly, your point of like I think Joe just hates lions because there were two scenes written in this script that were like about lions fucking with Mighty Joe because there's another like they crash their plane when crashes. Disney Plus does the Mighty Joe Young. <laughs> His mother is going to be killed by lions. Again. Dude, no, but what like. When they Disney actually did remake Mighty Joe, oh yeah, that's true. They ha- they did have his mother get killed by Hunter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very yeah, Bambi, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And they made an obvious villain, but in this one, the villain I guess was just Scar. Uh, just like showed up. <laughs> Joe's mother's holding the end of that cliff and fucking a line just threw. <laughs> His mom just got thrown by a lion. Um, yeah, and, and so I guess, like, maybe they were kind of setting up this idea that, like, Joe just hated lions and, like, they made a terrible mistake by putting him and lions in the same area. <laughs> I think that might have made a little bit more sense. Like, you could have even had one of him, like, being like, Rah! like, trying to shoo away lions or something, maybe be, yeah. be afraid of it, but... That does maybe make sense to that final film where he gets drunk and he's like, I'm finally bringing it to them lions. Those lions are getting it now. An early title for the film, as we joked about before uh, last week, was Mr. Joseph Young of Africa, which is just a wild title. <laughs> like, what would you think when you go and see that? You're just like, where's Cary Grant? Like, I thought, like, this, isn't this a Capra joint? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> Mr. Joseph Young goes to Africa. <laughs> Rose was uh, not a fan of Terry Moore. I don't know if that came, did that come up in that uh, commentary at all? Not at all, you know, not at all. I mean, I. I mean, again, it's only it's Terry Moore and Ray Harryhausen. Harryhausen's not gonna be like Rose hated the shit out of you, right? Like that's not his, <laughs> that's not his style, you know. Harryhausen, Harryhausen uh, is like, hey, if uh, you know, if Rose got drunk, she'd beat the shit out of you, not lions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I, and this comes from the making of King Kong, and they they're talking to Ruth Rose, and Ruth she says the following. One should never mention Terry Moore's name in the same breath as Faye Ray. She was all sweetness and light on the screen, but possessed nothing of Faye's class or delicacy. Delicacy. Mm. I, I don't know. Maybe she wanted to eat, eat her. I don't know. I, I don't know. But that was a very odd thing. But yeah, that, that was the quote. Sure. Ernest P. Schutzak was hired as a director, and um, after King Kong and The Last Days of Pompeii, Shotzak had been really kind of relegated to low-budget filmmaking. And it really took until 1940 with the movie Dr. Cyclops for him to finally be given a bigger budget. Although, as with everything in this story, the Second World War would change everything. So so we, yeah, I mean, we've been talking at length about this film um, and the making of it and Harryhausen and all these special effects. Here's where it starts getting dark. And yeah. things start getting a little bit um, more salacious and a little bit, uh, it's a different story from here on out. So uh, just prepare I, I, yourselves. Yeah, yeah, Trigger definitely. warning for what happens ahead, I would say. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff. That's a trigger for everything you could imagine coming up. <laughs> In, in, in World War II, uh, Shotzak was an army photographer, and during a high-altitude testing of the camera prototype, his 
goggles fell off, which just mm. completely fucked his eyes due to the extremely cold. Yeah, froze his fucking eyes. Uh, it just sounds horrifying, like so scary, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh my god. Um, Terry Moore actually claims that um, he could really only see things when it ranged, uh, when it rained, as he could see better in the darkness, and the light made it hard for him to see. Um, but all, all extents and purposes, he was probably one of the first directors to ever direct a movie blind. Um, even with the help of assistant director Sam Rubin, along with, of course, Cooper and O'Brien, uh, Shodzak did much of the directing with just his voice. Incredible. Which is really... Mm-hmm. Well, it's incredible because, like, this movie's pretty well-directed. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. It is. Um, Cooper convinced his old friend to return to filmmaking after a nine-year break for Mighty Joe Young. Despite this handicap, he still had full control of the set and knew what he wanted. His technique was apparently not for the liking of John Ford, uh, leading to the two men nearly brawling during the production. Can you imagine fucking John Ford trying to fight a blind man on set? <laughs> Shoes like is a badass. <laughs> Listen to this quote. This is his quote by uh, Shotzak. Mr. John Ford, a mean old bastard. <laughs> I love this dude. Thought he knew all there was to know about directing, which, of course, one might suspect he did. What with his own track record and threw his weight around at every opportunity. Thought he could barge in and tell me everything I was doing wrong with him being the boss and all that. So yeah, he was not a fan. He was not a fan. <laughs> they nearly they nearly fought, which is just insane. <laughs> and again, Shotzak was a tall, tall man. He like towered over most humans. So like, I would not. I I would never fight Shotzak. <laughs> Shotzak did say he enjoyed working with Ben Johnson. Uh, that was pretty much one of the only things that he, he like, <laughs> talked about enjoying in this film. He was like, oh, yeah, Ben Johnson, you know, I didn't fight him. So, yeah, that was fine. Because um, he was a, Shotzak was, like, a work-for-hire director, so he didn't have equal footing at all. And that pretty much made him lose his taste for directing. Uh, Cooper eventually kind of diffused the conflict between him and Ford by pretty much taking Ford aside and being like, look, Ford, this is not your movie leave him alone and let him do what he wants um maybe this is why all of the foreign documentaries like and and biographies just ignore this part of his history because it seems like he kind of got emasculated and sent home (laughs) and uh every tale uh telling that the the life of uh of john ford is like john ford was america's badass he never did anything wrong Mm -hmm. he's the greatest man ever he's the greatest human ever so yeah um, I think that's probably why uh, some people kind of leave this out of his biographies. Um, yeah, I can't uh, wait for your John Ford fan cast. I mean, it's <laughs> oh yeah, we I have can't. some stuff to talk about, Mister <laughs> Ford, as well. Um, I well, you're gonna put quotation marks and all that, but anyways, we'll get into this. Um, so um, it was li- too little for too too late for Shotzak. He completely lost his taste in directing. His final work was for Cooper again, as he did helm the prologue for This Is Cinerama in 1952, but that would be his very final work as a director. Ben Johnson, uh, the lead of this film, doubled for John Wayne, Gary Cooper, and other Western stars before getting on a seven-year contract with John Ford, 
Mighty Joe Young was the actor's first starring role. He credits the filmmakers with making sure he wasn't poor as they encouraged him to save and invest. Johnson enjoyed watching the effects work at the shop and did act as a consultant for the technical staff when needed. Yeah, so, um... And now let's talk about the book that uh, yeah, our so poor friend had to read. fucking book um, that I purchased with my own money. You need What's the title of the book? It's a book called The Nicest Fella, um, all about Ben Johnson. So this book... <clears throat> so we're going to have... Ladies and gentlemen... Buckle up, because this is a ride, all right? So um, oh, so I'm going to put all of the, what comes next in quotations, because I do not trust this book whatsoever, okay? <laughs> so this book, but I think it's worth talking about, um, because there's some insane shit here, and please take all of this with a grain of salt, right? Um, we do know some things that are true for a fact, which is that Ben Johnson um, was on a seven-year contract. Um, and the reason for that supposedly is that on the set of War Party, which was a John Ford-directed film, where Ben Johnson was basically the cowboy um, wrangling the horses. He came from a, um, a cowboy family. His dad um, provided Hollywood with horses and things of that nature, right? Um, but some of the horses got away on the wagon, and Ben Johnson saved the lives of a bunch of crew members. So... Um, essentially what happens after that is that John Ford promises him a, a career, right? After that, according to this book. And according to, that seems like it might be true, at least in part. <sighs> what nicest fella, <laughs> let me take another sigh. <sighs> um, what nicest fella um, tries to um, say, okay? Are you, are, are you with me, Kelly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> can, um, can, can I can I ask? Um, was the nicest fella written by Johnson? No, it was not. Okay, um, all right. Okay. It, it definitely was not. But what what okay. it is trying to say is that, um, and I could tell you who wrote it if I dig this book up. I don't want to give him any credit, but um, it's, it's it's okay. I just needed to know if it was okay. from first person. Um, or whatever. No, no, no. This book is trying to proposition the, the the fact that Ben Johnson is a great person because he's essentially a Christian. Um, straight white male, right? And that Hollywood <laughs> is like um, full of corrupt people, right? Um, it <laughs> it propose. So let me just throw out some anecdotes it throws out to prove this point. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the first quotes in the book is Ben Johnson was the gamblingest fella you ever saw. Okay. Um, and it starts with an anecdote of uh, to prove that Ben Johnson's a funny, great man was um, because he was a gambler, he gambled on horse races. So he found out a young, and it does make the point to say, black jockey, um, was riding a horse, and then the rumors were that that he was going to throw the race. So Ben pulled a pistol on him and told him he would shoot him if the jockey didn't race as fast as he could. So then the jockey, of course, won the race and then got off a horse and ran up the hill. That's like one of the things that tries. Wow, to what a what a great what great a great stuff. man, great man. <laughs> what a great racist man. What a great what a great man. Um, so like another thing, and this is really what I want you to, um, the audience to to understand again is that I don't know if any of this is true, um, but I definitely want to talk about it anyways. Um, that Ben Johnson we is you know in these films with John Ford, right? And what's going on in the behind the scenes is that John Ford has this male harem of actors he's working with, including John Wayne, 
um, who the book tries to paint as John Ford's bottom. Okay. <coughs> right? Okay. And um, that um, Ben Johnson is the greatest because he's the one that stands up and doesn't become one of the <laughs> Obviously, this book has an agenda to say, like, Ben Johnson isn't like those Hollywood weirdo types, right? Um, the reasons that they've made this decision that John Ford is was definitely very gay, mm. um, and of course that makes him, you know, it is very much as painting him because of that fact. Now, if John Ford was gay, fine, right? Obviously, right? I'm not trying yeah, to. For sure, for but sure. This yeah, book yeah. is definitely trying to say that's a bad thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and how much do you pay for this fucking book? Why are you gonna pay me back for it? Nope. No, I, no. I feel like I'm doing no. a public service right now. Okay, that's why I I'm feel like you it. definitely are because I was like, oh man, why isn't this book available at a library? And I'm like, oh, I this guess is... it's because it's like a, a fucking hit piece. Uh... <laughs> he was very gay because he really enjoyed yachting, just like Errol, <laughs> just like Errol Flynn is how it's put in the book. Just like Errol. Oh. Ben Johnson never saw a yacht in his life. He doesn't even know what yachts are. He ain't going on the water because the water's gay. It turned on the frogs gay, but it's not going to turn Ben Johnson gay because he refuses to go on that water. What Bottom. a bad, what a bad, what a bad thing. I, I I, was just like looking this fucking thing up. I'm like, I was like, oh, wow, there's a book on Ben Johnson. Oh, it's called The Nicest Fella. I'm sure it's like a really fun, oh, informative book that's like good and won't be fucking a fucking hit piece um, oh, but uh -huh. written by fucking Ben Shapiro. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, D Richard D. Jensen wrote this book, by the way. Okay. I'm. I don't even know if I want to credit that in the sources. I don't no. think I'm gonna. I don't think I'm gonna credit in the sources. <laughs> well, I mean, I, if we're talking about it, we should. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a warning. You know, written by the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> I want to also mention again that Ben Johnson was easily my least favorite part in the movie. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> I hate him in this movie. <laughs> Kelly, you and I were correct in right, figuring that out from day look. one. And Andrew was a big fan. Let's look, just put that out there. It's fine. It's <laughs> fine. Fucking hell. I can't. That fucking fuck. This is not the worst thing that we're going to be discussing. By the no, way. but like the but the thing that is actually real. Other King Kong alumnus: James Flavin, Milton Shockley, Harry Strang, editor Chad Chessman, Marcel Delgado, and cameraman Burt Rillis all returned for Mighty Joe Young. For the strongman sequence, they did actually do some heavyweight champions, such as Primo Carnera and Charles Post, who was a famous grappler. All of this seems very trivial after what we just talked about, and it's hard to get back into this, but we are going to try. <laughs> when designing the sound for Mighty Joe Young, they incorporated an ape call by musician Nervous Nervous, which is a terrible name, but anyways, yeah. that was his thing. Nervous okay. Norvis, um, who was a famous musician of the era. When the film was released to theaters, it was a flop, which led to the immediate cancellation of Cooper's proposed sequel, Mighty Joe Young Meets Tarzan. Cooper had made significant headway on the planning for the sequel, getting an agreement with Tarzan producer Sol Lesser, and the rights were no longer as complicated as Tarzan had recently moved to RKO. Leland Lawrence was hired to write a script, however, it has never surfaced and is unclear if it ever was actually written. As a farewell jester, Ernest Schoedzak wrote a poem, and he it was very interesting. It was called Grow Young with Joe Young, and it, uh, it mentioned Obie and Harryhausen. 
Um, no mention of harems, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> and now, to make a pint, probably the first reference to O'Brien, uh, <laughs> Joe wrecks O'Hara's joint. Of course, the audience is thrilled. Of course, there is nobody killed. But this is not through lack of trying by Harryhausen and O'Brien. I w- when they did that like um, scene where he climbs up and shakes the um, bridge and breaks it, hmm. there's actually, um, I-, I believe, a stuntman is seriously injured during oh. that scene. So I wonder if that, I mean, <laughs> I wonder if that's a jab at that. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Also, I think in that scene as well, somebody was mauled by a lion that they kept in the, in oh. the film. Um, so yeah, there was a few stuntmen injured in this film. Um, when the scene where Ben Johnson's character, not when he we're climbs, not mentioning his name anymore. I don't <laughs> want to hear anything about that man. Climbs back up the, you know, right before um, Mighty Joe Young saves the little girl, um, Ben Johnson, his character, um, <laughs> real American Ben Johnson, um, attempts to climb back up the rope, and then it bur- like it catches fire and he falls again. Do you remember that scene? Um, evidently, that that actor, um, you know, broke his Achilles' heels when he hit the ground. So, damn. Um, yeah, well, a lot of injuries. That sucks. Him, so. Now we'll talk about other things that suck. Um, <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about the life of Terry Moore. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, this, real, 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 like being serious. Um, this is trigger disgusting. alert for. Wiping away the smiles. Yeah. Trigger alert for, like, predatory sexual behavior. Um, uh, trigger alert for... The idea uh, that I Howard d- Hughes ever oh, fucked. Tr- that's that's <laughs> a trigger word now. The trigger idea alert. that that man fucked is... I can't get it out trigger of Trigger alert for Howard Hughes in everything Anyways. that is, exists with him. Terry Moore had just turned 20 years old the year that Mighty Joe Young premiered having celebrated her birthday on set. Her name was Helen Corford until Harry Cohn suggested that she change it to Terry Moore because they wanted to make her character in The Return of October, uh, which eventually did come out in 1948, appear much younger than she was at the time of filming it. Um, They really kind of wanted to associate... uh, Terry Moore seemed to kind of be a, a, a sellable name, a bankable name, essentially. Return of October has the dumbest movie plot of all time, um, and that is um, a girl thinks that her uncle has been reincarnated as a racehorse and must win the uh, Kentucky Derby. Her first role with her new stage name, and she was on contract with Columbia. This is when Howard Hughes comes into Carrie's life. Howard Hughes was the sole stockholder at this time of RKO. He didn't even really realize that in buying RKO, he got the rights to Mighty Joe Young. By this time, he had gone through three traumatic airplane crashes, including one that caused him to nosedive into a residential area. Almost killed other people. He was considered to be a relentless inventor, also having worked with the CIA. Fucking stooge. (laughs) And also considered by some to be a quote-unquote great lover. Uh. I don't believe it, but apparent, but many people have written about it. When he puts his sight on a woman, he went all out because he's a fucking creepy asshole. 
Hughes planted people on his payroll at events that Terry Moore attended to spy on her. He was really into Terry Moore after watching the dumbest movie of all time, The Return of October. He watched the movie once five times in one day. And he just was so into Terry Moore that he called up Harry Cohn and was like, Hey, Harry Cohn, what's the, what's the deal with this Terry Moore? And then Cohn's like, You stay the fuck away from her! She's my actress! Stay the fuck away from her, Hughes, you fucking creep! And it wasn't like, it wasn't that Harry Cohn was like a good guy. It was more of like Harry Cohn was a fucking, also pretty creepy, but wanted to maintain her image. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he... Of course, Howard Hughes, the rational man that he was, uh, responded by pretty much uh, stalking her. When they finally did meet, um, Terry Moore thought it was like an impromptu meeting that just happened by chance. It wasn't. Howard Hughes, of course, orchestrated the entire thing. Um, When he kept stalking her on the press tour for Return of October, where he would, like, show up in his plane to, like, cities very far away... So, like, she'd be in, like, fucking Kentucky, and he would show up on the runway and be like, hey, what's going on, little rabbit? Which was his pet name for her. I don't remember this part in uh, Scorsese's The Aviator. No, no. (laughs) How the fuck did this guy get played by Leonardo DiCaprio? Well, actually, actually, that makes some sense. (laughs) That makes such sense to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Leo was like, wow, this guy really knew what was going on. Uh, well, why don't you come over here, little rabbit? <laughs> oh, God. And yeah, he would like do things like any means necessary, orchestrate time alone with her on a plane ride. Or he once, like, she would go on plane, like, he invited her on a plane ride with one of her friends. And then they went a few times, and she was like, oh, I don't want to be on a plane alone with him, so I'm going to bring my friend every time. And then Howard Hughes dealt with this by calling up the friend and giving him the wrong address to go to, like the wrong airstrip to go to for takeoff, mm. so that he would be alone with her. Because he was a fuckface. Yeah. Just before the release of Mighty Joe Young, Huge purchased RKO, as we mentioned, and he would eventually completely tank the studio because he he had no idea what he was well, doing. Because he purchased like, it to pick up this girl, like girl, no, right? No, he didn't. No, he didn't realize it. He bought. He didn't realize he owned a movie with her in it. Because he called Harry Cohn, and Cohn was like, you already own a movie with her. Oh, okay. Got but he intended to do that. But he had already, yeah, yeah, well, like, he, he intended to, to get her for RKO. He was pretty much like, hey, I have this movie yeah. studio. Can I borrow your star? And then Harry Cohn was like, you fucking idiot. She's already on your payroll. <laughs> She's in one of your stupid movies. So, yeah. Um, Fuck Terry great. Moore, the, the way that, like, a lot, like, the things that, like, this is, like, a really a sad story. Yeah. Um, like, Terry Moore was very sheltered at this time. She was born into a Mormon household, and her mother really kind of kept tabs on her. She made her outfits. She she really, it was really, like, a family affair. Um, and they had to be kind of swooned to being into uh, Hughes as well because she would invite Hughes into their house, invite her over to dinner, and Hughes had to like kind of like schmoozed all the parents and mm-hmm. they Terry was like really, really kind of like she was an adult at this time, like so it wasn't illegal, but she was not worldly. So she was she lived a very sheltered life, um, and with her family too. Like even though she was doing all these movies, um, and this is post filming uh, Mighty Joe Young. Um, 
it, it was pretty. It was, it, he was really taking advantage of her. Um, she eventually was like, look, I'm not going to have sex with you until marriage. Um, and then he tried some really stupid moves. Like he went, hey, let's marry. Ah, look at the stars. Let's marry before God on this beautiful <laughs> night of stars. Look at the stars. Aren't they beautiful? Uh, okay, now we're going to go back to my place. And she's like, no, fuckface. That's not a wedding. You just <laughs> fake married me under a bunch of stars fuck off um he was still resistant because he was like ah well it would ruin your image you were that little girl in the animal movies they can't imagine you with a playboy like me uh we can't have a public wedding howard hughes uh one day was just like he was like aha i know what to do i'm gonna bring you to a boat and then marry you on a boat (laughs) and like they mentioned that the the boat so the boat was apparently headed into Mexican waters when it when it took off. Uh, they were married by the captain. Apparently there were people around, right? Like there were people there, like friends and stuff like that. And it was apparently in the ship's log. But I don't think this was ever legally binding. Um, the grossest part about this is the wedding cake. Do you know what the wedding cake was, Kelly? It was, it was from this movie. Uh... The piano from Mighty Joe Young. Yes. Mighty Joe Young. The wedding cake was Mighty Joe Young holding the piano, and then he gave her a music box that played (laughs) Beautiful Dreamers. Unfortunately, it did not have any percussion by Harryhausen in this version. And therefore... Can you... This is so creepy. Now I'm going to see that scene. I'm going to imagine fucking Howard Hughes on the water being like, and now I'll give you your cake. And of course, I guess in this case... I'm I'm a I'm an ape. I guess I'm Mighty Joe Young. <laughs> like, 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 usually, in a wedding cake, there's two people who are getting married on it. Howard, you fucking moron. Uh, he he. As soon as they got married, um, he completely started to control her life. No surprise there. He stopped letting her eat sweets, um, and everywhere they went, uh, she got mistaken for his daughter. Jeez. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and eventually, he cheated on her. A fucking close. <laughs> a fucking little scumbag he was. Um, and the thing that kind of, like, all of this that I are, are kind of colored by my own experience and my own readings of this because Terry Moore still says she loves him and she still, she talks highly of this romance. She, she seems to, um, you know, still hold a lot of these memories in high esteem. I think that it's really hard to, like, you know, be like, yay, he was a creep and they got married. Like, well, she was like so young and he like took he advantage her. of her. He groomed her 100%. And it's, mm-hmm. it's real gross. It's so real I, don't, gross. I, don't, I don't blame Terry Moore for that. I mean, she also. No, 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 no blame no. to Terry Moore. Was like, raised was a in a cult in as well, which, um, you know, um, skewed her um, perception of what. You know, romance should be like, right? Are you are you saying? Are you saying? That I'm saying Mormonism uh, is a cult. Yes, I am saying. Okay. That. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it d- definitely um has um in my opinion perverted perceptions of what romance should be like, right? I mean, her her mom and dad are not stopping her from seeing Howard Hughes. They're just putting the asterisk on it of not until you're married, right? right. They've all moved out to Hollywood in support of her career, right? Um, and they put a lot of, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that necessarily, but they've also put a lot of stress 
on her success because of that. Um, well, and yeah, Howard, like, and Howard Hughes is inextricably connected to that success mm-hmm. at this juncture, right? Do you ever? I have this question. I need to know this question. I need to know this question. Do you think that Mary C. Cooper ever met Howard Hughes? I don't know. I don't. I don't know about that. Um, I don't. I, Probably he must have because they point. like they both flew in the aviation circles, but well, I can't yeah. imagine they would like different. each other. No, I sure. can't. I can't. Im- I can't imagine. Like I imagine how mad that would make Mary Cooper being in a room with this man. Well, so I mean, I think it's important to have this conversation now because we had a really um, discussion about a really shitty book that I had to read. Um, so now I think it's just fair to talk about a really oh, uh, great uh, book I read. So before we get too far into that, um, I will I will um, repeat that I had to read two amazingly shitty books to get some of my opinions on that. Oh, that's fair. Um, the one that wasn't as terrible, like the one that was bad but like not badly written, was *The Beauty and the Billionaire*, which was by Terry Moore about this experience. Like it was all that stuff came from that book because that book was really well written and. Um, was just about her experiences and was kind of like a memoir of that time. Mm. The other book that was really bad was called The Passion of Howard Hughes, and it was 100% just a smut book. Mm-hmm. It was just smut. Yeah, that book all about Howard Hughes. I'm all for smut, not about <laughs> Howard Hughes. I'm not about Howard Hughes. I do How about a- not want to imagine that guy from The Rocketeer fucking. Okay, <laughs> I'm never gonna be able to watch the Rocketeer again because I'll be like, my God, you, you, you uh, kill him, Rocketeer, kill this man. <laughs> kill this man. Um, um, but yeah, I I had to get rid of that book immediately. I couldn't even finish it because like as I was reading it, it was just like, and then he fucked Marilyn Monroe, and I'm like, oh my God, I don't. He didn't. I don't believe. Even it. if he did, they're probably casting it in a way he, that. Well, even is... if he did, I don't want to read about it. <laughs> Because, like, no. it's all about how she sexy Howard it. Hughes is. Well, I, I mean, um, I read um, the incredible book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood. Um, this is the book um, um, that really details, like, how abusive Howard Hughes was. Um, and it's, it's, wrote by, it's written by Karina Longworth um, of um, – you must remember this fame, right? Um, it, so, of course, if you've heard that podcast, it's very much written in that voice. It's an engaging book. Um, it's also very disturbing. Um, because because the thing that you need to know is that Terry Moore is not an outlier in Howard Hughes' world. Um, he did this again and again and again um, with different women, right? Ginger Rogers, Catherine Hepburn, Jane Russell, Billy Dove, right? He's he preyed on women, um, and he did it very much. You know, so when when um, Andrew's talking about him being cast as like a famous lover, I think it's important to understand a lot of that perception is written by men who probably um, probably um, identify with his ability to own women because that's what it was. Let's about. just say, let's just say this. Howard Hughes would probably have made a great star for that guy who wrote that fucking Ben Johnson yeah. book. Like that, mm. like it was his story is written by dudes like that. But it's also more important to understand that Howard Hughes was doing this while positioning himself as a feminist of the era. 
Oh yeah, so he's so he Joss yeah. Whedon. He's Joss Whedon. He exactly <laughs> yeah. is Joss Whedon. Um, and it's important to understand that Joss Whedon's not the first person to do that, right? right. There's right. A no, long no, Joss Whedon sucks so men. bad. He's not even original at his shitty things. <laughs> I mean, you know, the first woman director of the 1950s, you know, um, Ida Lupino, was able to direct films because of Howard Hughes, and that doesn't mean that excuses his abuse, right? No. So no. it's really important to understand that um, that's why Howard Hughes was able to do what he was because he was less – he was doing these horrific things behind the scenes, Right, and then being marketed as a believer in women who was casting more women than anyone else, but that was because they put him within his reach. Mm. Right. Um, oh, I, I want to read like a really um, something that's like sh- shook me to the core, like a, a passage very early from that book um, that really puts this in perspective. Um, and I'm sure every woman in the world is like, no shit, dipshit. Um, but I'm a dude, and um, it's important for me to understand these perspectives, you know? Um, The female body has always been a key building block of Hollywood cinema, a raw material fed into the machine of movies as integral to the final product as celluloid itself. So I think it's... um, I I find that passage bone-chilling because... People like Howard Hughes and people like Joss Whedon today, to this very day, see women as just materials to be used for mm-hmm. their own gain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the story, you know. And Terry Moore um, is a victim, so uh, you know, at the end of so how she, you know, and and people will say of Howard Hughes, he had mental illness, and that's definitely true, and it definitely contributes to. Um, some of his behavior, but it doesn't excuse it, right? right. So I think that's right. also important, um, you know, to, to point out, you know, Howard Hughes, again, did this to women again and again, and he, you know, a horrible human being. Can't. The Rocketeer is forever ruined for me. It's just going to be fucking The Rocketeer is still a good film. I'm sorry. I, the Rocketeer is one of the greatest movies ever, I, I would say. <laughs> but um, now I really wish that Mr. St. Clair just killed Howard Hughes. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, Howard Hughes explicitly said he loved Terry Moore because of her ability to portray yes. naivety, right? Naivete. So, yep, so he's he essentially was, saying he's attracted to her because she's innocent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, no. That's very very much part so, of the, the, the thing. So, um, so I just want to bring this full circle to um, our discussion about the movie Mighty Joe Young where we're um, talking about how the men on the set are treating – that character as well very early in that film um oh right yeah in the movie itself right, right and right. and again this is written by ruth rose right so that maybe no, maybe yeah. there's something something there yeah i mean again i don't you know uh, they are women in this era are um even ruth rose right is still a um <laughs> is still a um limited a uh, voice right well, of course, yeah, because you know, men, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I know that was really heavy. Y'all. Can't wait to end. Oh, I, I'm gonna end um, this with a, a wet fart. So just, be, <laughs> I'm so glad we got this. 
Um, so when Mighty Joe was released in other move countries, it was actually marketed as a King Kong film. Wow, isn't that a funny fact about all that horrible things we just I learned? Really broke that, broke <laughs> that, I really brought down this podcast. Uh, a, a prop truck uh, from Mighty Joe Young appeared in the chest footage for the Las Vegas Monster, a film that would never come to pass, but the test footage was very entertaining, and it was animated by Pete Peterson, who was the second animator for Joseph Young. Again, would have had uh, a lot more, uh, you know, Humph and Shvaga if we hadn't just listened to that. Howard Hughes, the monster. The real monster was Howard Hughes. (laughs) Well, of Las Vegas, I'm (laughs) sure. Um, Also, the Ben Johnson gambling man. Um, (laughs) The gamblingest fella you ever met. (laughs) Piece of shit. I fucking hate it. Of all the things Kelly has heard tonight, that's the thing. That that one, yeah, that that wording just bothers the fuck out of me. I know. I wrote it three times on the paper. <laughs> the, film, the film was eventually remade by Disney in 1998 to coincide with the upcoming American adaptation of Godzilla. However, there were multiple attempts to remake the film dating back to the early 80s. There's only a few paragraphs left, guys. Don't <laughs> The producer of Cagney and Lacey, Barney Rosenworth, the producer of Cagney and Lacey attempted to remake Mighty Joe Young for ABC, and it got far enough into production to hire Terry Southern for the screenplay with Gene Warren doing the stop motion. However, Dino De Laurentiis had already paid RKO not to license the remake rights because he might have been interested in remaking it. He never did. <laughs> by 1984, Dino's claim had expired, and another attempt was made by Jim Danforth and Harry Walton. Walton was pushing for the remake. However, Danforth was much more interested in a sequel film instead. Danforth contacted Ben Johnson and wanted it to involve his character still living in Africa involving a valley of giant ape. I don't know why you would. Like, even among other things, his character is not that interesting. So right. I don't know why. Yeah. Why was Terry Moore not contacted, right? Yeah, no, um, it's like we need the, the, the white bread dude, you know? Have yeah. Oh, he's Danforth, so boring. Yeah, that would be so boring. Danforth attempted to figure out if the Cooper estate still owned the rights. However, it was another property that Cooper failed to renew, so it belonged to RKO. RKO only wanted to make the picture if they could co-produce it. Danforth had had a massive headache with Universal when he tried to make The Legend of King Kong in 1976, which we'll get into in a future episode, and he never continued on with the project because of that. The final remake attempt before the one in 1998 was, was in 1993 by effects technician Hal Miles. But the Cooper estate reportedly rejected the script. Another script which has never seen the light of day. Mighty Joe Young may not be remembered fondly by today's audiences, but it was the last major stop for many of the Kong's original crew and deserves its place in film history. And that was the making of King Kong. Kelly. No, no, that was the making of uh, Mighty Joe Young. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, what what are your thoughts about what we just discussed? Um, I feel like I've aged a lot. Um, uh, You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. No, okay, it was it was very interesting. It was uh, informative. I liked the behind the scenes stuff when we started getting to the the, the lives lived. It was dark and um, unpleasant, but you know what? Good movie. Um, I like the Harryhausen shit. <laughs> yeah, he's fucking awesome. Ray was a good one, you know? It, it appears. Very true. Jason, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, You know, Twitter. 
you know, bad attitude eight six on Twitter. You can find me there. You know, um, on this podcast, on uh, milkshakes, uh, moments of madness. You know, sounds good, Kelly. Where can we find you on the internet? I'm Ohel Kel on Twitter, and I uh, co-host the podcast One Miss Pod. If you like this podcast, you can always contact us at milkshakesandmimosas at gmail.com. And remember, all of our uh, sources will be in the show notes, even that horrible Ben Johnson book. (laughs) Thank you, and have a good day. Bye. Bye.